Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Warren Frank Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the Digital Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to a special edition of our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. I'm joined today by my colleague from our London offices, Mobin Tahir, who's an Associate Director of Research for Wisdom Tree United Kingdom Lim- Limited. Please note, I'm um, representative of Foresight Fund Services, a discussion not tied to the offer of investment products, and the views our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree's affiliates. We have a very special guest, a Wharton professor, Eric Gilia, who focuses on the oil and energy markets. And uh, he's got some really interesting views on despite oil's really large run-up, uh, thinks there's some, some underlying issues that could see even more oil price gains. Um, and, and even since I first reached out to him to join our podcast, Eric just reminded me that we've got another uh, oil has been moving higher. So, Professor, thanks for joining us today. And, and maybe get, outline your thesis. What is happening in the oil markets? Are, are we expecting even higher prices here? Yeah. So uh, thanks for thanks for having me uh, on your program. You know, the thesis is really my thesis on this is really laid out in terms of the interplay between OPEC and the U.S. shale producers. So the first kind of key data point to have in mind is that basically every incremental barrel that supplied sort of increasing demand in the market since 2010 or 2011 has come from North America, either U.S. producers or Canadian producers. The rest of the world was mostly flat, okay? And so very much the world that we've lived in since, call it, 2014 of sub-$100 oil, of oil in the you know, $50, $60 range, uh, this, this is a world in which incremental demand could be met by U.S. shell producers, okay? And it's a world that OPEC struggled to calibrate to. And many of OPEC's decisions in the lead up to the COVID crisis um, were from the point of view of how can OPEC sort of maintain market share, even though they continuously sort of failed to do that. Okay, so what is sort of the COVID uh, crisis and in kind of being in hopefully with that uh, predominantly behind us, how does that sort of form the view for oil prices going forward in terms of supply and demand? Well, you've seen a, a few different things. One is you've seen the most dramatic international coordination between OPEC and OPEC plus countries in terms of ratcheting back supply when there is historic demand destruction, demand destruction that hadn't been seen since the Great Depression. Okay percentage-wise, at least, in terms of absolute numbers that had never been seen before. Um, and so now what you have is a sort of gradual, you had 9.7 million barrels a day taken off the market by OPEC+. Plus. Just to put that in perspective, it's roughly 10% of all 
consumption uh, in the world ne had never been done before. That dramatic of a supply cutback. So we have that pullback. Okay. Now we're in the process of incrementing that back up. Okay. And the key sort of interplay that we have is OPEC plus is looking to see it as they ramp up their production and as they're trying to keep supply and demand finally balanced, what's happening with the U.S. shale complex and the North American ability to compete with barrels on the global market, okay? Every indicator that we have is that shale production in North America is significantly impaired, okay? For production to remain flat with shale development, you have to be, you have to be drilling wells. If you just stop drilling wells, and completing wells like we had in the spring of 2020, production begins to decline dramatically. And we saw roughly a 20, 15 to 20% decline uh, from peak to trough of production in the United States, okay? But what we're failing to see at this point is significant reinvestment in shale oil the way that we saw in earlier time periods, whether it be 2018 or even, even earlier in the decade, just to put some numbers out there in perspective. The last time that crude oil was in the, call it $67 WTI range, okay, which was in 2018, the oil rig count in the United States was 874. Today, it's 359. The frack spread count, which is the number of crews out there fracking, was 485. Today it's 226. Okay, so we are we are at investment levels that are dramatically lower. And the overall kind of upshot of all of this is that when you look at production from the US, every uh, almost every sort of forecaster out there, when you look at the amount of lessened capex that's being put in, is that production coming from the US is flat to declining for the near term, for the next one to two years. OPEC sees this, and so they're kind of comfortable letting prices rise and not accelerating their barrels back on the market to take market share. And so it's very much a story of that interplay. If Saudi Arabia tomorrow wanted to drive the price of oil to 40, they could open the taps dramatically and they could do that. Why are they not doing that? They're not doing that because they don't see the bounce back in US production the way that they did in prior periods, sort of in previous sort of mini cycles over this last decade. So the impairment that you see, you know, it, it, how permanent is it because that they sort of ran out of capital and they, they can't put it back to work? Um, do you, as, is there an oil price level that they start getting the financing and can increase the recount? How, how long lasting is that? There are a confluence of investor preference factors, of government regulatory factors that are all at play here. So the first is, first big issue is investors uh, in many respects uh, feel, I think, burned by the space. Okay, what do I mean by that? You had firms that were not paying out dividends, were not returning capital to shareholders, that could just borrow, 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 
borrow, drill, 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 and it never really sort of caught up with them, okay? Now, the investor mantra is, we don't just want you to get a good return on the CapEx you're putting in, we wanna see CapEx dollar, we wanna see dollars come back to us in the form of dividends and repurchases. And that makes the, 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 the shale model in terms of the raising of, of capital a bit, more, um, a bit more challenging because it's forcing firms that for the last decade have not been, by and large, have not been free cash flow positive to be free cash flow positive. That's one thing that's holding them back. Second thing that's holding them back is increased emphasis on carbon neutrality and ESG preferences by investors as evidenced by the recent, uh, the recent fight over board, board members at Exxon, right? That is a microcosm of what's going on in the space. And it's, the question is, tell me how you get to uh, being carbon neutral of reducing your carbon footprint. And the reality is, if you're in the shale oil business, despite everything you might say about ESG, it's just, if somebody's interested in ESG, they're not gonna invest in a shell oil company, right? This, this shifting investor preference has also increased their cost of capital. Lastly, you have a dramatic change in government, um, what I would call government uh, uh, just view and, and lack of promotion of the fossil fuel industry in, in the United States. You know, when President Biden came in, um, the some, several of the immediate steps he took, for example, on the freeze on on BLM lease sales. Um, now, not a lot of production in the U.S. is coming from BLM leases. Maybe in the five to ten percent range, at least in the lower forty-eight. Okay. It doesn't mean that there won't be new drilling, but it means there won't be new lease sales. That got a lot of the attention. Perhaps what was underappreciated is he also put a freeze on all new hydrocarbon pipeline rights of way that cross federal lands. Okay, Tell me how you build a pipeline from the Permian Basin to bring oil to market without crossing federal lands. It's incredibly challenging. What does this ultimately do? It increases costs. It increases the break-even price of oil that you would need to go um, and and drill. And so we are seeing, you know, rate count tick up, but we're at an order of magnitude different level than at prior sort of stages in the, in the shale oil game. Another important perspective, just to put the natural decline that's from shale wells. Uh, uh, kind of in broader context. Today, 40% of all oil that's coming from shale wells produced in the United States, which is roughly 80, 60, or call it 70% of all oil produced in the United States, 40% of that is coming from wells drilled and completed in the last two years. So if you stop drilling, if you slow down drilling, you're going to see natural declines. I think what OPEC Plus is seeing is that so long as we don't see dramatic increase in this shale oil production coming from the U.S., they're content to hold back and say, we're just going to very carefully increment up production. 
And you've even seen a remarkably tepid response to the market of potential Iranian barrels coming back onto the market. Two million barrels a day is a significant amount of oil in normal times. But given that you've had so much production basically evaporate from the supply base coming out of the U.S., it's something that the market is much better positioned to absorb. And, you know, in many respects, I think the, the Russians and the Saudis feel like this is the time to hold back until they start seeing a significant ramp in U.S. production, which I think it's going to it's a ways away for for those factors that I described. I just think it, we're in a very different capital formation and investment environment for these firms. Can you give you know, what you mentioned that the U.S. was like the the big additional supply? Can you give our listeners a little bit on what is the total demand supply balance you see that we need to fill? Like where demand drops, yeah. where it's picking back up, and how much net? I mean, I, I've heard some comments that the U.S. We were talking about energy independence. We may have to start importing oil. Can you give a little context on the specific numbers for the global picture? Yeah. So broadly speaking, you can think of the world oil market as being a hundred million barrel a day market, okay? Um, and, and basically every year since the financial crisis up until COVID, you had one million barrels a day of incremental demand coming onto the market, okay? The first big shale-driven supply flooding dislocation occurred on Thanksgiving or shortly after Thanksgiving of 2014, when oil prices were very, you know, hanging around $100 a barrel. And, and, and the expectation was the U.S. was going to be adding a million barrels a day of supply to, uh, to fulfill the increased demand, okay? And it looked like once we got towards the end of that year, it was much, going to be much closer to 2 million barrels a day. And what that resulted in was a two-year tailspin in prices and fight for market share, which resulted in prices going from the $100 barrel range down to the $30 barrel range in 2016. That dislocation really was driven by really just a, call it one to two million barrel a day fight over market share where OPEC was gonna draw a line in the sand, okay? And since then, we've continued to see demand increased by a million barrels a day up to COVID, but we've had plenty of oil. But what this also means is that basically since 2014, we've had a extended low CapEx cycle uh, for oil that is beginning to catch up. Shale can be quickly ramped up and ramped down with CapEx. Offshore Angola, these international large-scale projects these are CapEx cycles of five to 10 years. We are now starting to see, um, we are now starting to see the cost of this capital starvation. Angola is an OPEC country. They're not able to meet even their reduced quota currently because of capital starvation in their offshore oil fields. And so we're starting to see some of that happen, which I think is also one reason the Saudis are sort of content to, to sit back and wait for higher prices. Um, and, you know, ultimately, you know, what are they looking at? They're looking at currently U.S. shale, U.S. 
production complex is producing roughly 10.8 million barrels a day. And as long as that number stays flat, which you can see every week in the weekly reports from the EIA, and you don't see meaningful ticks upward, leading indicators of that are these frack spreads and drilling recounts, they're gonna let oil prices run to wherever I think they would like them to be, which in many respects, if you look at OPEC countries, the prices they need to balance their budgets, right? It's in the $90, $100 barrel range, okay? Which is you know, why I think so long as the US shale firms are uh, basically impaired in their response, we're, we're just gonna see OPEC let prices run and gradually increment up production. So point being, if a one to two million dollar million barrel a day difference in supply and demand in 2014 drove such a large price drop from $100 a barrel down to 30, now we're in a position where everybody's projecting the back half of 2021 for us to be in a one to two million barrel a day deficit. The IEA is projecting it. OPEC Plus is saying we're going to be one to two million barrels a day short oil. As of today, our oil stocks, oil inventories are in line with their five-year average. All of the excess that was built during COVID is off. We're going to be hitting a deficit space. And I think it's going to be a point in time where we, we will just see prices, prices run so long as U.S. firms are not responding with dramatically increased production. Professor, do you take a view on uh, the trajectory in terms of the timeline? Uh, how soon do you think those dynamics will play out and how soon uh, can uh, oil prices rise to a certain level uh, that you foresee? I think this will become apparent over the next six to 12 months. I mean, look, this my my, my, my belief that prices uh, very much uh, could run to $100, you know, many... Uh, prestigious uh, investment banks have put out numbers for Brent crude hitting the 80 to $90 range by year end. Everybody's looking at the same numbers. It's just what's sort of, what do we see in terms of the, the rate of change on the, on, uh, on the price here? And it, all signs are pointing to U.S. shale firms not responding the same way that they would have in 2013 or 2017, 2018, last, not last time prices were higher. And, you know, I, I think in the next six to 12 months is when we're, we'll really see these prices run towards $100 a barrel. It, it, that's, that's, you know, that's is also the same time frame in which I think people will, people have argued that inflation, what we're seeing on inflation is going to become much more apparent to the market right there, any sort of, you know, meaningful thesis on in, in inflation is going to tell you that oil should appreciate at least maybe 10 to 15% over the next couple of years, just from that, let alone these other supply demand dynamics. You, you also mentioned at the start, uh, one of the reasons why uh, OPEC was able to, you know, they, why oil prices responded the way they they responded was because OPEC was able to coordinate their policy response very well. Now, if if price does rise the way you uh, you are forecasting it, uh, do you think that compliance problem could become a problem because when prices had crashed, 
you know, the OPEC group almost had to uh, coordinate their policy response. Even then they had their issues and differences. But as prices are rising to 80, 85, 90, do you think that uh, coordinated response will still stay in place or will the coordination somewhat fall apart? I guess the question is to what degree coordination might break down, right? There are always issues with com- compliers and how, you know, what, you know, what, what exactly the numbers are and then making, having com- non-compliers needing to make up for cuts that they didn't take. I think there are a few different factors at play. One is that you have a meaningful portion of OPEC that cannot ramp production even if they wanted to. You have the Angolas of the world that you've just you've had a seven-year capex cycle where they they've just been starved of capital. You can increase their quota all they want; they're not going to pump anymore. Okay, for them to pump more. They can start investing today, but that is not going to have a meaningful impact on production until five years from now or seven years from now. I think that um, where you know where you potentially see some of the coordination breakdown, you know, could be between Russia and or Saudi Arabia. But I really think that in a world of I can make more by pumping less and letting prices go up. And as long as market share is not being eaten by the U.S. shale firms and, and U.S. multinationals of the world, that feels like an equilibrium that that could sustain itself for a while. Typically, I, I feel like historically where you see like the biggest problem with non-compliers is when I'm Iraq, which is a, 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 a habitual non-complier, and I see that there are other people, you know, competing on the free market that are able to take market share that I'm basically giving up, right? Because uh, because I'm part of OPEC. Well, we don't have these other other as many of these other investments outside of OPEC taking up market share, and so I think to the extent there's an equilibrium that will. Continue. I think the the odds are is that you're going to have uh, people more apt to a both comply and b raise less of an issue if there are uh, minimal non-compliers. Let's say where they see they they see a bigger picture of is as long as U.S. shale is down and out, we're just going to sit back and let prices run. That's interesting. Another another dynamic we're keen to get your views on is, of course, the energy transition. Uh, without a doubt, it has an impact on on oil prices. Now, admittedly, it's a long term theme, the energy transition, but it's something that seems to be accelerating in many parts of uh, uh, the the theme itself. How do you see uh, that challenging the bullish view that you have, uh, and how urgent is that challenge being posed? So I would view this as really a uh, a medium-term risk to uh, to oil prices. Um, I think that certainly there is an increased emphasis on energy transition. There is increased capex dollars um, going towards energy transition investments, which in many respects I think paints a stronger picture in the shorter term for 
oil prices because you have CapEx dollars going to other things um, that are likely going to be sort of longer cycle in terms of their impact on oil prices. But just to give you some perspective, um, the U.S. currently, if you look at U total U.S. energy production from oil, natural gas, um, uh, renewables, nuclear, 50% of the BTUs produced in the U.S. come from oil and natural gas fracking. Okay, that is a big, big hole to fill with any, any set of energy transition investments. And so, you know, I think oil and natural gas are both going to continue to be part of a, the, the mix. If you look at any sort of projection from the IEA, uh, the International Energy Agency, in terms of um, in terms of expected future production of, of energy, where is it coming from? You see dramatic rise in renewables. You see uh, reduction in coal, and you see uh, slight increases in natural gas and, and stable to declining uh, uh, oil. And so I, I think it's really the energy transition as it comes to oil prices is, is really a medium-term risk. Uh, but in many respects, I, I, I feel like we are in probably in the next one to three years in this window of a sort of mini commodity super cycle. And we're seeing it in many different types of commodities. They each have their own eccentricities. Oil is different than lumber. But all of them sort of point towards the same sort of uh, same sort of broad thesis in terms of reopening big demand shock. The question is, what are the supply dynamics? And I think uh, the supply dynamics on the oil side set up well and constructively for price appreciation, at least in the near term. And what about uh, geopolitical risks? You briefly mentioned Iran and uh, potential new supply coming back to the market, not necessarily having a huge bearing on prices uh, at the moment. But do you think geopolitical risks, I know in recent years, like in 2019, they were a major cause of uh, volatility in oil prices. Is that just something that will drive short-term volatility or does it have a real bearing on prices uh, going forward? Yeah, I mean, in many respects, I'm surprised. I was surprised that the market did not react more to the gradual um, change in 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 kind of what's happening with Iran and sanctions and so on, or at least what's sort of expected to happen. Um, I think that the fact that the market did not react negatively suggests, well, two things. One is there may be a lot of Iranian barrels that are hitting the market that we just may be already embedded in the market, but are getting to the market in ways that 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 we don't entire aren't entirely able to observe. Uh, but two, that the overall demand picture is so constructive relative to the constrained supply that the one to two million barrels a day of potential Iranian supply is not going to um, to move the needle uh, as dramatically. I, I think the other thing that's probably underappreciated here too in terms of supply response is that there's really only one country in the world that has invested in 
constructing its wells and its reservoirs and its extraction in a way that allows it to increment up supply and demand quickly and in response to market conditions. And that's Saudi Arabia, okay? They have tremendous optionality in their ability to produce. In early 2020, in, you know, in, in sort of the midst of COVID and the dramatic mark, both market-driven shutdowns of oil production, as well as uh, OPEC plus coordination, you had a tremendous amount of production being taken offline. Anytime you take production offline in any sort of standard technologies, which would be kind of outside of the way the Saudis do it, whether it be in Russia, whether it be in Iran, whether it be in the United States or Canada, anytime you shut in production, there are always risks when you reopen it that the well is not going to behave the way that you expect. There's going to be a certain number of wells when you open them up, pressure will have been lost. Parts will have degraded downhole, and it would require capex and investment to fix it potentially. And so the idea that there are going to be Iranian barrels flooding the market, yes, there will be incremental production. But when things are shut in, they degrade, and you're going to need a certain expertise and know-how to be able to, to bring that back online. And that's another reason why we've seen U.S. and Canadian production, I think, struggle to ramp back up because wells were shut in, pressure is depleted, wells were reopened. And even if 90% of the wells reopen the way that you expected, you're going to have 5 to 10% that are impaired. And this is something to keep in mind as we're emerging from probably one of the greatest shutdowns of oil production that's ever occurred uh, in April and May of last year. Professor, we, we jumped straight into the bottom line, but we didn't give our listeners anything about yourself and your background and interests. I mean, you certainly oh. are a deep expert on all these areas. Um, tell, our, tell our listeners a little bit more about how you became an expert on these topics, what you focus on at Wharton. Yeah, so uh, basically, Prior to entering graduate school, I, uh, I worked at both ExxonMobil as well as uh, Citigroup. Citigroup, I did equity research um, on energy-related issues, most particularly master limited partnerships, um, so specific sort of pipeline-type asset in the United States. Um, and then when I entered graduate school, a lot of my research was focused sort of at the intersection of finance and and energy dynamics. So studying what's happening in uh, areas that are experiencing shale booms. Um, what are the sort of knock-on effects to those, uh, to those discoveries and how do they sort of transmit more broadly in the economy? I also have a, a, a set of research kind of focused uh, more particularly on corporate finance research questions within the context of energy firms looking at how and why they make their investment decisions, how and why do they make their risk management decisions. And sort of all of this has, has sort of served as a backdrop in terms of kind of developing my understanding, at least of U.S. energy firms and sort of the current environment they're in and why sort of in many respects what they're seeing today is so different than what they've seen in the last two decades of their uh, of, of their firms 
and and their their uh, sort of opportunity sets and capital investments is very much uh, a, a very different dynamic in terms of sort of government um, influence of investor preferences playing very significant roles in a way that they never had before. In the early 2000s, um, the Sierra Club partnered with natural gas producers to promote the use of natural gas from fracking because this would reduce the country's reliance on coal and led to a much lower carbon footprint. Well, the U.S. has cut its greenhouse gas emissions more than any other country in the last 15 years, in large part due to fracking from natural gas, for fracking natural gas development. But the Sierra Club clearly today has a very different view on uh, where it believes the energy complex should go. And so, you know, these have all been things that I've studied. It's very fascinating to see the changing dynamics in the space over the last several decades. And I think the one thing that can be certain is that over the next decade to two decades, we'll continue to see uh, very, uh, very new and interesting uh, dynamics in the energy space. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. Appreciate your insights. Any places you want listeners to pay attention to your research, where to find find your work? Yeah, anybody interested in my research can go to uh, my, you know, Google my name and Wharton, go to my personal website at Wharton. I have all my papers. I have all my data on fracking that's posted for anybody that wants to look at that and uh, and kind of think about their own insights as it relates to the data. Um, and also several pieces of code from my papers for anybody that's interested in that. So thank you. Excellent. And we'll post all those links in our podcast recap. So thanks again for joining us, Professor Gillier. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You've been listening to Behind the Markets. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show.